There we go. You've got to do that in the right order, you see. If you take your mask off without taking the glasses off, the end over there somewhere. <laughs> Good morning, all. Can I extend uh, a warm welcome to you as well and to uh, add on to what Tim was saying? Um, it's lovely to see you all here this morning. And uh, I was going to say lovely to see you at home as well. That's really weird. But um, I trust that some of you are joining us online. It's lovely to have you, you here with us as well. I'm going to turn you off, though. There we go. It's really off-putting when you can see yourself on the screen up there. So I'm just going to turn that off for a moment. Um, this morning, we are in... Our series again, The Storyteller, and our series this morning, uh, we've looked over the last few weeks at the parables of Jesus. So we're going to be uh, continuing today with the parable of the ten, uh, sorry, with the parable of the uh, bags of gold. But I'm going to start a little bit earlier in the chapter uh, with the parable of the ten virgins, because these two parables kind of link so closely together, and in fact, there's no real break between them. Um, and you'll see the kind of, as we go through this morning, and I start to unpack this, um, there's quite a, a few overlaps, and I want to start with this, and if you'll indulge me. So Matthew 25, Matthew chapter 25, starting at verse 1. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but didn't take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. At midnight, the cry rang out, Here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, our lamps are going out. No, they replied, there may not be enough for both of us, and you, uh, us and you. Instead, go to those who sell oil and buy some for yourself. I'll start that one again. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet. The door was shut. Later, the others also came. Lord, Lord, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know the day or the hour. And then onto the parable of the golden, the bags of gold. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey, who called his servants and trusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey, the man who had received five bags of gold went at once to, uh, and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I've gained two more. His master replied, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag came, of gold came. Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went in, out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked and lazy servant. So you knew that I harvested where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well then, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever will be given more, sorry, whoever has will be given more. And they will also have an abundance. 
Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness, where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Before I start, should we pray? Father God, I want to thank you for your word that is still speaking to us through the generations. That your word is living and through your spirit you can speak to us even today, even though these stories are so old. I pray that you would use them this morning, Lord, and that you would speak to us through them and we would hear what you want us to hear. Amen. Um, Do you know what? These stories are quite challenging. I don't know how you find them at the moment. Um, They're interesting. Do you know what? I'm, I'm thankful to say that uh, I was happily brought up uh, going to church. I say happily. Most Sundays I was happy brought up in church. Um, but Sunday school um, was great as well. And being part of a Bible-believing family, you can't, you know, I can't overrate that, to be honest, looking back in my experience, that even now, I wasn't a Christian then, and I was probably a churchy and at best, if anything. You know, I didn't really have a choice in what I was doing. But looking back now, the foundations that set me, uh, they really stand you in good stead. And do you know what? I was brought up uh, through Sunday school on a diet of kind of these parables. And I think, to be honest, it's quite easy to see these sometimes, isn't it, as, as children's stories. They're very accessible. They're very, very open stories, very sort of, at one level, easy to understand. But do you know what? It's really hard. And looking back at this story with a view to speaking on it this morning, it's really hard to get past that. And I think sometimes you, know, you kind of think you know what a story means, and then you start to dig down into it. And I've got to say, I was thinking this on the way to church this morning. I think everybody should be required to write a sermon. I mean, not, not with a view to, like, you're next, and then you after that. But I think, honestly, the, the privilege, I, I read the Bible every day, but the privilege of being able to spend extended time in one passage. And the more you dig, and the more you look down, and the more layers you peel away, the more it speaks to you, and the more sort of layers you didn't realize that there before. And it's, it's such a privilege to be able to take those at face value, children's stories, and being able to unpack them. And do you know what? I thought I, re- I knew this story. Um, but I often wonder, how would it sound if you heard this story for the first time as an adult? You know, I mean, like I said, I was brought up on these stories, and I have this preconception of what they are, but actually, if you hear this for the first time, I don't know, and I never will know, I don't think, how that actually affects you. But one of the first things that jumps out at me is, what is a talent? Do you know what? Richard Hodges was speaking to us a couple of weeks ago and blessed us with a message about the, the tares in the wheat field. And do you know what? It's a different version, I think, that Richard used. I'm used to hearing about the weeds in the wheat field. And that's, that's kind of, yeah, you know, weeds in a wheat field, that's going to be bad. But I didn't realize how tares in a wheat field, how that word is actually, once you understand that it's, it's a weed that looks exactly like the rest of the wheat, that it becomes a very different message. And I think here, just because we know or we think we know what the word talent means, that we can have a preconceived idea of what's going on. So what is a talent, first of all? Um, I think we all know that a talent can be a skill or ability, can't it? You know, we can have talented people. We have a TV show called Britain's Got Talent, and that's disputable if you've ever seen one of those programs. But the talent is some kind of ability or gift that you have been given, right? Well, actually, I don't know if that's true. Do you know what? If you look back in the Old Testament, a talent is actually a weight. So it's actually the largest weight that the Bible uses on a regular basis. And it's actually um, a talent was equal to 75 pounds, we think, which for the younger among us is 35 kilograms. Now, that's a huge amount of gold. And it starts to bring other stories to life then. Um, Back in uh, Samuel, 2 Samuel, it says, David took the crown from the king's head and it was placed on his own head. It weighed a talent of gold. 
And it was set with precious stones. Now, you know, that's one thing, isn't it? We can understand taking the crown on somebody's head and putting it on his own head. But a 35 kilogram, 75 pound crown, it starts to bring everything back to a different sort of uh, meaning or understanding. In the book of Revelation, we're told at the end of the age, a great hail from heaven fell upon men. Each hailstone about the weight of a talent. 35 kilograms of ice landing on people. Okay, so 75 kilograms of gold. This, is, this opens things up. We're not talking in this case necessarily about talents, about skills, about being able to juggle, whatever it might be. Now, back in uh, biblical times, I understand that a talent was taken to, a, to mean that um, it was roughly about as much as an average man could carry comfortably. And that's kind of, again, you know, this is as much as you could carry you know, comfortably and, and safely, I suppose. But actually, if you look at it in a modern way, this is a talent of gold, 35 kilograms of gold. Now, at the moment, at current market value, according to Google, that is 1.5 million pounds worth of gold in each talent. We're talking about huge sums of money here being entrusted to people. So once you know that, it starts to put some things into question, like some of the interpretations I've heard over the years, um, literally referring to talents, you know, like your skills and ability, which is fine. But I don't think this is necessarily the case. Um, we know, and I'll unpack this a little bit more in a moment, that we as Christians will stand before the judgment seat of God. Have you ever stopped to think about that and let that sink in? We're going to stand in front of God one day, face to face, and he's going to ask us to give an account of what we did with our time, with our talents, with everything he gave us. We're going to have to justify how we spent what he gave us. But we're not going to be judged as fit for heaven or not. And this is, this is a really crucial point that I want us to take away. We're not going to be judged as, oh, hang on, no, no, you can't come in. If we are Christians, if we know God this morning, if we know Jesus, if we have a relationship with him, then we don't deserve to be there. We know that. But when God looks at us, he's going to see Jesus in our place and know that it's all paid for. So how can this be true of the talents? In verse 28, it says, So take a bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has, has will be given more. And they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now if you're a Christian, you shouldn't fear in this way standing before God. I think it's going to be a very fearful experience to be able to stand in front of the mighty awesome God. But he's not going to throw us out. If we have a relationship with him then we might have an account to answer for based on how we used our time, but he's not going to say, no, 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 I've changed my mind, you're gone. It doesn't work like that. The servant who buried the gold and did nothing with it was cast out to where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. Does that mean we're going to be cast out if we don't use our talents? Well, surely that would mean that we're at risk of losing our salvation. And I think that's a very, very dangerous road to go down. Okay, I've heard a lot of people who have interpreted these chapters and these verses like that. I don't think it is possible. In fact, I'll stand on now. It is not possible, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it is not possible to lose your salvation. If you have a true relationship with God, if you know God, if you have a relationship with Jesus and you believe what he has done for you, then that cannot be taken away from you. Okay, so this can't necessarily mean what we think perhaps it means. We know that for it is by grace you have been saved, by faith, and not of works, so that no one can boast. If it was our talents that we were using, surely we could boast. We could say, oh, I did this, like I, I had four talents, and now I've got eight, like the first seven did. Well, the five talents, he made it ten, didn't he? But we've got this ability then to boast about what we've done. 
And at the same time, um, I've even heard over the years people talking about this literally about money. They go, oh, well, the yes, bags of gold, that means money. Great. So it means that whoever's got money will be blessed with more money. And they started talking about this as a way to, you know, it's almost like prosperity gospel. It's almost like these, and I've got to say, maybe it's is a general sweeping uh, generalization, but um, very often American, um, that, you know, it's almost this kind of, give us some of your money and you'll be blessed. Touch the screen and you'll be healed. You know, this kind of idea. Please don't, if you're at home watching this, don't get back on the sofa. Um, but this is it. Does it mean gold? Does it mean money? Does it mean talents? Or is it something else? Now, one possible interpretation of this is what if it means faith? What if these servants who were being given gold were actually, well, in our version of this, had faith? Well, that starts to make a bit more sense, doesn't it? If you have lots and lots of faith, then it's easy to grow that. If you have faith and you use your faith and you start to see what that faith can do, the faith in the living God, then you start to see how that works and that increases the faith you have in the future. So actually taking a faith, using it, and growing that into a bigger faith, that kind of makes sense. If you have no faith or you don't use the little faith you have, then actually maybe that'll wane and that'll fade away. But even this has got issues. But you know what, I think the conclusion I came to after looking at these different versions and recalling different sermons over the years, I don't think it matters what these talents mean. And you may disagree with me, but I'll try and unpack what I'm going to say now. But the talents represent, what they represent, whatever they are, the key features we have of these talents, they didn't belong to the servants. Whatever they were for us, or whatever they are for us, obviously gold for them, it didn't belong to the servants. They were entrusted with it, they could use it, and then they had to give it back. Okay, whatever those talents are for you, whether it is your skills and abilities, wherever it is your money, okay, it's been given to you, entrusted to you by God, but you will have to give it back. You can't take anything with you. So, if it's something that we have for a time that we have to use wisely and give back, well, that's starting to become something a bit more applicable. But you know what? The master trusted the servants. It's honestly staggering, to be honest, the more you look at this, I think, that the servants, the kind of word, it wouldn't be a breathful servant without talking some Greek, would it? So the actual word for servant in uh, Greek is doulos. I'm sure I'm not saying that correctly. But doulos is actually, um, it's more of a, ser- a word for slave. And I don't mean sort of a chattel slave, like an American understanding or modern understanding that we have. I mean, it was a, a, a slave um, probably by, um, for a fixed term or probably for um, agreement. There's different reasons for slavery, so don't get that connotation in your head too much. It's not quite what it seems. But to entrust somebody who is effectively your slave, you know, if it's somebody who works for you, like a paid employee, well, that's one thing, isn't it? But if you're trusting it to a slave, this, this master didn't entrust a little bit of money. He entrusted millions and millions of pounds, or the equivalent of millions of pounds to them. Now, if I don't, I'm not in this working environment anymore as a teacher, I don't have to worry about millions of pounds, thank goodness, sadly. Um, but when I was even an engineer in, in industry, if I was working on a million pound project, for example, I wouldn't be working on it on my own. My boss, I don't think, would say, right, here's your money, off you go, I'll see you in a whenever, and uh, make sure you've increased it. There's no chance. And I was a paid employee. They went through interviews to get there. This is servants or slaves who were entrusted, and he didn't even give them instructions. He didn't say, right, what I want you to do, go to the market, buy shares in this, go and buy some of that, go and sell this. There was none of that. He literally gave them money and said, right, go on. 
use it, and I want more when I come back. He left it up to them. He gave them a huge amount of trust with a huge amount of wealth. And I think whatever you understand your talents to be, know that they're valuable. Know that they're valuable. Whether your talent is faith, or your talent is uh, having an incredible sort of um, prayer life, or whether it's, you know, even if you just take it as the breath in your lungs, because even that's a gift from God, know how valuable that is. Now, this, this, um, this total investment the master left was over 12 million pounds. And I'm sorry to bang on about it in terms of modern day money. I know it's not really about the money, but just showing it, it's just huge numbers. But he vested his trust and his faith in them as well as his money. Why did he do it then? You wouldn't do that for somebody who kind of been working for you for a couple of days, would you? And kind of think, well, you know, this is, let's give it a chance. Let's give it a shot, see what happens. He must have known them. He must have known them pretty well to entrust them at all, let alone with such a huge amount of money. Okay, just as God knows you, and he knows how much you can handle, how much to give you of whatever you need. So the key points of this, really, um, and I think some of this is, is quite easy to overlook as well. Obviously, this, par- this parable isn't necessarily all- allegorical, but it does relate to um, a different set of circumstances, doesn't it? The master in this story is Jesus. I hope you can see that. Now, I'm saying I hope you can see that. It's, I thought it was obvious, but actually, when you look, <laughs> honestly, if some of these sermons I've seen over the years, there was one person actually tried to turn this around and said, ah, the master must have been the devil, must have been Satan. Because he was tempting them. He was actually getting them to grow the money. They just think, no, no, the master is Jesus. The servants were, in modern days, in, in our relationship, are professing Christians. Now, I use the word professing quite carefully. Because we heard from Richard a couple of weeks ago, you know, the, the tares of wheat in the wheat field, not all professing, not all those who profess to know God necessarily do. The journey the master took doesn't tell us anything about it, does it? Just... It's this enigmatic line, the master left. Where did he go? We don't know. How long was he gone? We don't know. But actually, that's kind of crucial as well. If the master left, and we know the master is Jesus, then Jesus left, right? This story comes literally a couple of days. Jesus is telling the parable of this to um, to the apostles a couple of days before the Passover feast. A couple of days before he was handed over to the Roman guards. A couple of days before he was held to account and punished and tortured and whipped and nailed to the cross and died. Their master, they didn't know it at the time, but their master was going away. Our master is still away, still present with his, by his spirit, don't get me wrong, but he's gone and he will, he promises, return. So this return of Jesus, it puts a whole different spin on this message. The master of praise and the work of the servants is the Christians standing before God, giving an account of their time and what they did while he was gone. Now, the servant who was given a lot was able to reduce so much more. Kind of stands to reason, doesn't it? Have you ever seen The Apprentice with Alan Sugar? Sorry, Lord Sugar. And, uh, you know, they're given a certain amount, and then they're told to go and do as, as much as they can with it. It's that kind of idea. But it doesn't necessarily mean the team who starts off for less will actually get more, uh, will actually get less in the end. The servant who was given a little was not able to produce anything, but disobeyed his master by failing to use what he was given. Now, this often struck me as, as ironic, to be honest, that um, this, this servant is described as lazy. I don't know if you've ever tried burying 35 kilograms of anything. 
Um, that couldn't have been an easy job. Now, I'm not suggesting that that was as hard as you know, actually using the money. In, but I, I think there's more than laziness going on here. In the parable, Jesus tells us that each servant was given the amount according to his ability. As I said earlier, the, the, the master knew his servants quite well to entrust them with anything at all. And actually, to know one servant, you go, oh, right, he's a hard worker, brilliant, I'll give him the five talents. I think my money's safe there. Right, the, uh, oh, you're not so sure about you, but you know, you're probably all right, I'll give you a couple of talents and see how you do. And then he must have known, if he was that lazy, he must have known that his one servant was actually bone idle and was terrified of him, and, and why did he give him money at all? Why did the master even sort of give him the money if he knew how he was probably going to deal with it? Well, actually, he gave him a chance. He still trusted him anyway. It would have been easier as well for the, the master to flip this round, wouldn't it? And to almost patronize the more able servant. So, I know you're probably more able. and I, oh, I don't want to offend you. I'll give you all two. How's that? I'll give you all the same. Let's see how you do. Make it a fair competition. But he actually gave each one a different amount. Now, the fact that the master in the story has been away for a long time, as far as we know, when he returned, did he expect his, when he returned, we expect his servants to be given an account of what they've done with the investments. Now, we've all been given in different amounts. We know this, right? I'm sure you've seen people, maybe you sat next to somebody, not looking at anybody, and you kind of think, yeah, but they've got so much more than me. They've been blessed with so much. Of course they can be able to do more. But each of these servants, the one that had five talents, the one that had two talents, they both doubled their money, effectively. They both had 100% return on their investment. They both had the same success, even though it was proportionally different. But I don't want you to sort of get the wrong idea of this. Okay, I know we're going to have to stand in front of God and give an account. And it might be that you are going to have to say that, yeah, great, I, I, can't, I didn't quite double your money. But look, I, I made it work, and I, I got this, and I did what I could. I think even then, just like these servants, how, how chuffed they felt, and chuffed is an understatement, isn't it? How you will feel when God looks at you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. But do you know what? Don't be afraid. If you know Jesus this morning, if you have a true relationship with Jesus this morning, then we have grace. It's through grace we've been saved. Don't panic, but know that there is still time. What if one of those servants, maybe the servant he gave two talents to, had failed? What if he came back and said, right, where's my two talents? I'm really sorry. You won't believe what happened, right? And he tried, maybe applied it in the same way, maybe just you know, through bad investments or through, I don't know, happenstance, whatever happened. What if he'd lost that money? And so I worked my absolute socks off, and that money's gone. I'm sorry. I wonder what the story would have said then. I think the servant who didn't take his master's work seriously. I think this is the key point, is it? Whether he was lazy or not, whether he was scared or not, clearly he didn't take his master's work seriously. And it's funny, they're all described as servants. But if you have a servant, I know it's different for us looking at employee, employer relationships, but if you're a servant who doesn't serve, where does that leave you? Can you still call yourself a servant if you don't serve? If he was 
entrusted with a job by his master. And as a slave or a servant, he knew exactly what was expected of him, but chose not to do it. Then surely he wasn't a servant. So maybe this isn't the story of the three servants. It's the story of the two servants and the pretender. So, when the third servant, I call him the third servant, not the one-talent servant, but he came back, and as soon as the master said, look, where's my money? He went, oh, but probably brushing the dust off it still in the mud. Here it is. I knew you were a hard man. He goes on the offensive straight away. He doesn't own up to it and say, oh, do you know what? I, I, I completely failed. I had this great idea. I was going to bury the money, but he had no leg to stand on, really, did he? He said, I know you're a hard man, investing where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. He starts pointing the finger, not himself going, yeah, that was rubbish, wasn't it? He points the finger at the master and says, yeah, but you, but you nothing. He knew what was going on. He tries to justify his lack of action instead of owning up to a lack of effort. He tries to blame the master for his poor attitude. Do you know what, as I was digging around, looking into this and getting deeper and deeper into what this could possibly mean, um, there's actually old rabbinic law. So the Jewish law at the time, there was actually a bit of a clause, and it sounds like a bit of a loophole that I'm sure lots of people um, looked into, that if you bury any value of money, then it actually gets you out of jail, almost, if you like. According to rabbinic law, burying the talent meant freeing oneself from the responsibility of the wealth that had been entrusted. Do you know that? If you buried your gold and then forgot where you buried it, or if you buried somebody else's gold and forgot where you buried it, then you were kind of like, oh, well, okay, you buried it and you forgot where it was. That's logical. That's fine. It, it, it's this kind of weird clause where if you bury it and almost like a squirrel burying nuts and they kind of forget where it is, it's that kind of that nature. But if they buried it and didn't know where it was, then he couldn't be held accountable for its loss. And I wonder if when he buried that gold, it wasn't out of fear, if it wasn't out of dread, if it wasn't out of laziness, maybe he thought, got it. I know what I'll do. If that money goes anywhere, then he can't have a go at me because, you know, according to rabbinic law, I wonder if that's the case. And I don't want to put words in their mouth, but I think, you know, sometimes we can have that idea, can't we? That yes, I know what I should be doing, but I couldn't do it because, and he started to justify it. He started to come up with the reasons, the excuses beforehand. Or maybe afterwards, they think, oh, I should have done that, shouldn't I? Whatever it might be, whether it's speaking to a colleague or you know, sharing the, the, the word with somebody or sharing the gospel with somebody. You think, ah, oh, yeah, but I, I couldn't because... What are you going to do about it? You know, we, we're going to be held account for each and every interaction that we have. There's not going to be an excuse. We can't say, ah, yes, but of course, yeah, I buried that. Ah, see, it's not going to work. Now, true faith produces works. And faith without works is dead. James tells us this. James uh, chapter 2, verse 14 onwards says, What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of, of daily food, and one of you says to them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed by the body, what does it profit? Thus also by, uh, faith by itself does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God. You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. 
Okay, however you spend your time, know that if you have faith, you will put it to work. I think this is a very, very stark warning. So, just as the servants in the story had all these millions of pounds at their disposal, um, it wasn't theirs. I think it's kind of important because we look at this now and um, across from my house there's a, a car yard. Uh, and in that car yard they, they always sell in second-hand cars. And you kind of think, they're working really hard. Everybody's come over to the house and done work. You know, if they, we had our driver placed recently and there was somebody working at the front for a, a week basically and seeing what was going on. They said, they're selling loads of cars. Do you know that? I know they're getting different cars all the time. They were selling dozens and dozens of cars throughout the week. They were working hard. Isn't that good of them? But why are they doing it? Why would anybody do anything? Because of what they get, right? They get a cut or a commission for each car they sell. And I'm not saying that's wrong. That's, that's the way the world works. But these servants didn't stand to get a cut today. They weren't on a commission deal here. They were slaves, effectively, working for their master. And when he came back, they go, right, I turn my five into ten. There you go. Thank you very much. And walk away, pretty much, expecting nothing. So they didn't gain from their work, at least not directly. The servants belong to the master. And if they served to further the kingdom or the master's sort of domain, then they would benefit from this security and growth. Okay, if they make the, the master richer, then their work is going to be more secure. If they lose all his money, then they're going to be out of a job. Okay, so they don't stand, to work, um, don't, don't stand to gain directly, but they do stand to gain indirectly. So be diligent and wise with what Jesus gives you to manage in his absence. Okay, it won't be that you, you necessarily gain a reward, but actually you will gain by increasing his kingdom. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Do you know you're a slave? And I don't mean that negatively. I mean that in such an amazing way. Paul says in Romans, Paul, as a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel. A servant of Christ Jesus, that's the same word, doulos. It's effectively a slave. Paul, a slave for Christ. In John chapter 15, it says, I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I have learned from my father, I have made known to you. Okay, Jesus called us servants, or called them servants. Effectively slaves, and that's a good thing, a slave for God. But now he calls us friend. And you hold your friends to different accounts, don't you? But what will we be able to return to him when we meet him face to face? Be productive for the kingdom. So, it starts to bring other stories into uh, relationship here, doesn't it? That one servant, just like I started off with the parable of the ten virgins. Some of those virgins were foolish. And they didn't have enough oil. And they ran off to get more oil and they were locked out of the house. That servant was foolish with his uh, investments, with his master's investments, and lost a load of money or didn't make the money. And there's other stories about the vines, bad vines. You will know the, fr the good vines by their fruit. That which does not bear fruit will be cut and burned. Bad vines or bad servants? It's the same thing, isn't it? But at the end of the story, a key event happens. And it's a key event. This is, this is the incredible part. The master returns. Okay, this is a parable talking about how Jesus is interacting with us. Isn't this exciting bit for us? Jesus is coming back. And when he does, he wants an account 
of what has been done with his money, the master in this case. Our master's returning too. We need to give an account. Now Jesus, for this story, could have chosen smaller sums of money, something less. Can you imagine? This could have been the parable of the five denarii. Could have been, couldn't it? Why not? You know, it's the same story, isn't it? If you trusted one servant with five denarii, one servant with two denarii, and one servant with one denarii, well, if they double the money, it's still the same message. It's still the same idea. When I was back in school, um, many, many moons ago now, they used to run a thing called the Young Enterprise Scheme. I don't know if anybody did this or if it was even a thing back then, but we kind of signed up to the scheme, put your name on the line, fill in the form, right, I'm going to start a business. And it was all to get people into business and entrepreneurship and stuff like this. And they kind of said, right, we'll stake you. This is a big deal now. We will give you 10 pounds of our own money. And we want you to work with that money and grow it as much as you can. Whoever makes the most money wins. And that was that simple. Um, we didn't make much. Um, I think our idea, if you know what a CD is, because they're a bit vague now, aren't they? Uh, we used to make clocks out of CDs and sell those at little sort of school fates and stuff. And looking back now, I can understand why nobody bought them. They looked awful. But, but I think mum's still going at home, isn't it? Somewhere? Yeah, they're <laughs> still there somewhere. And if it isn't, I'll be asking why. But these things, we kind of took our money, invested it, and then we tried to make as much money as we could. But I've got to say, there wasn't a huge deal. It wasn't like, oh my goodness, they trusted us with 10 pounds. It was kind of like, oh, okay, thanks. If you lost it, and you kind of invested it, and you lost all of that money, you knew, that, well, okay, fair enough, you'd probably have to answer a few questions, but as long as you could show what you did with it, then things are going to be okay. There was no real risk or stake. And I think if Jesus had chosen the parable of the five denarii, and a denarii was, I think, about the wage for a worker for one day, so you know, it was a sizable amount, but there was no real stake there. If he's talking about talents, pounds and pounds and pounds of gold then it starts to have real reason and, and real uh, impact. Just like um, Jesus' stories through a lot of the New Testament, um, when he was talking about the plank. You know, why, why are you looking at the speck of sawdust in that person's eye when you've got a plank in your own? He wasn't literally talking about a plank. That would be crazy. But hyperbole was used there to make the point even bigger. When the master sees what is done, being done with the money, he bestows a well-done, good and faithful servant on both of them. And do you know what? One person made five talents of gold for him. One person made two talents of gold for him. And do you know what? They were probably thinking, oh, we've done well here, yeah, we've done well. And he went, well done. Thanks for that. What? That's it? But do you know what? It's, it's amazing what a well done can do. Do you watch the British Bake Off? I watch too much TV, apparently. This is awful, isn't it? I need to have a look at my life. Do you watch the Great British Bake Off? Even now it's moved to Channel 4. It's still good. Um, but there, the highest accolade you can get, not Baker of the Week, not to win the series, the Hollywood handshake. Have you seen that? It's ridiculous. You know, all he does, he goes, good bread, that. And that's all he does, but they swell with pride. Some of them are crying. It's like, he shook my hand. It's amazing. But you know what? It's amazing what a well-done can do. It's amazing what a pat on the back and, hey, excellent job there can do. But you know what? The amazing bit here is not just the well-done, not just the Hollywood handshake, as it were, but he says, enter into the joy of the Lord. Wow. You know, when we get that, it's not going to be, hey, well done you. Nice work. Now enter into the joy that I have to offer you. But do you know what? The one who didn't do anything with the money, apart from dig a great big hole, um, got the opposite, didn't he? You wicked and slothful servant. It'd be a different TV show, wouldn't it, if they used that in the Bake Off instead, you know, the cake collapses. Anyway, sorry, I'm going down too many TV routes. A wicked and slothful servant. 
Okay, he goes on the offensive, he starts blaming it, pointing the finger, yeah, yeah, but you, yeah, you gave me too much, and actually you went away, you gave me the money. Just, just go. Get out. But where do we stand in light of this? And I want you to see this, and I've deliberately not put, I've talked about money a lot, I know that, but I've deliberately not put a, a kind of a thing on this that I think a talent is, whether it's a skill or ability or amount of money or whatever it is, because I want you to see whatever you have is not yours. Whatever it is, is not yours. The very moment you are here at the moment doesn't belong to you. The moment you believed in Jesus, the moment you became a slave for Christ, none of this belonged to you. It's given to you as a gift from God. Every breath that you take, every moment that you have, I'm avoiding words of lyrics here, <laughs> whatever it is, whether it's your talents, your skills, your money, your breath, your education, your job, none of it's yours. To do nothing with those gifts isn't just to demonstrate a lack of faith. It's, it's a slap in the face, isn't it? It's an awful thing to think, well, actually, look at all the stuff I've been given. Look at all the amazing things that I've been blessed with. Okay, I'm off. It just, why would you not use it? And I say that full knowledge, knowing that I don't use mine as much as I should, or use it in the way that Jesus would have me use it. It's difficult. It is difficult. But let's encourage each other. Let's help each other to do this. Let's keep each other on track. Do you know what? I'm um, taking part in John's Bless course in the morning, which, uh, at the moment, which takes place on Thursday evening. I know there's another group, I think Tuesday midday as well. But actually, it's an amazing little environment to be in, in a small group of people who are looking into discipleship, this small group of people who are helping each other and praying for each other and there for other people to lean on and say, look, I've tried. This week has been tough. This week has been so hard. I've tried everything and it just hasn't worked. Or actually, hey, I, I tried this and it's, it's really working for me. I've managed to speak to Jesus every day. I've managed to pray every day. I've managed to do this and I've seen this in my life. You're having that. Let's help each other. There's an old saying, and I can't remember who said it now. Um, a ship in the harbour is safe. But that's not what ships are for. It's, I know it's easy to say these words. It's easy for me to come up with these words, stood at the front here. I haven't got it all together. I don't want you to think of this. This isn't like you know, some kind of how-to guide. This isn't some kind of motivational speak by, speech by some kind of you know, corporate entertainer or whatever, even though I might be dressed like it this morning. It's not what this is. This is a big responsibility, and I want you to take this as a challenge. Okay, Richard spoke to us about the tares of wheat or tares in the wheat field. I know this may not necessarily apply directly to some of us, but I hope that it does. I hope that we all hopefully feel the weight of the responsibility, not in a negative way, not to be dragged down by it, but so that we live up to this responsibility. Know that what you have has to be used. There's no point not using it like the best china or the best cutlery that you keep at home that you know, kind of just sits in the drawer tarnishing or just getting covered in dust. Okay, this isn't what this is about. This is a precious gift that you've been given. And it's not even like our time is ticking down. But we are closer now. Do you know what? The, the apostles, when they heard this story, they were waiting. Well, actually, when they heard this story, Jesus hadn't left them yet. But you hear a lot in the, the, the Gospels and you hear a lot in the, the New Testament after Jesus had died about how they were waiting for his return. Jesus promised to come back. And I know he rose from the dead, but that's not what I mean. He ascended into heaven and he promised he'd be back. 
He said he went to prepare a place for us, but he'd be back to come and get us. And they didn't see it in their lifetime. But we are closer now than we ever have been. It's going to happen, whether it's in our lifetime or not. It could be. Will you be ready? Let's get these ships out of the harbour. Let's get them to work. So I just want to end with a few questions. And I'm reluctant to say these because I know you're probably going, well, how dare you? But actually, yeah, these, I need to answer these as well. Okay? It's, it's not like I say, I've got it all together. Are you working as if you expect him to return? It's, it's easy to be busy, isn't it? It's easy to keep yourself busy and keep yourself ticking over and kind of think that you're, oh, I'm busy, I must be doing well. But are you working as working for the Lord as if you're expecting him to return? And that one day you're going to have to account for what you're doing. I wonder how you'll be caught. Will you be caught doing what you should be doing, multiplying the gifts that you've been given? Will you be caught in a way that a good and faithful servant will be caught? Or will we be caught digging a hole? Let's pray.